Amen. I should have told you to clap. We normally clap. There we go. There's a little bit. Uh, all right. Uh, all right. My um, name, I don't know if I said my name. I might have. My name is Paul Seiver. I'm one of the elders here. Welcome to Hope Community Church. We're excited to be concluding our summer sermon series, The Story of the Bible in 16 Verses. This is week 14, and we're going to wrap it. We're going to put a bow on it. Uh, so just to start, I want you to think about uh, a story that you've read or book uh, that stands out to you, something from maybe when you were younger that you still think about. Right now, we're uh, at nighttime, we read our son, uh, um, Tom Sawyer, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. But the one I thought of was Hatchet. Raise your hand if you read Hatchet. Anybody? We got, hey, we got a few by Gary Paulson. But I was thinking about this story and why it resonates. Why do I still think about it? Um, because we're actually wired for story. Uh, that's why we've done this sermon series. That's why God tells us his story. We're wired for story, but something about a story that gets us invested in the characters, uh, it might be relevant for us. I think the first time I read this, I was uh, in middle school or maybe fifth grade, and I'm like, oh, I, I want to survive in the wilderness. What could I handle it? Uh, and then actually, when I was working in a school, I read this again uh, as an adult, and it was still good. I loved it. Um, but it's, there's something relevant. There's something that connects with us. We see ourselves in the story. And that's how we're going to kind of put a bow on this servant series. We're going to look at how God tells a better story with a better hero and a better ending. And that's actually uh, the name of the sermon today. Uh, God tells a better story. And our text can be Revelation 21, 1 through 4. And so we're going to kind of look at, we're going two parts. Uh, we're going to do a big recap of what we've, where we've been so far. Uh, and then we're going to look at the second half. We're going to look at where we had it and and why this glory, this word that we have, is this is kind of the last uh, notch there in the story. The time has come. Glory is the last one there. So we're going to go through this and, and just walk through the story. If you're feeling like this is getting a little redundant, you're probably going to come up here and tell us all about Jesus. And well, yeah, that's what we're going to do. And the reason why is because everywhere we go, we're being told different stories, and we're being told this is what's true. And so when we come to church on a Sunday, we actually get to hear the true story. So let's recap it, starting with creation. In the beginning, God. And so we get this story of creation. God brings light to the darkness, and he's hovering over the face of the waters, and he does all these things to create the world, bringing things together, and he concludes that with the pinnacle of his creation, human beings. And it says... In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And we saw that God is our creator. He's the one who made us, and he made us for a purpose, and he cares about us. And we were made, this word image there is reflect. We were made to reflect his glory, to go across the face of the earth, displaying who we are. In fact, in these verses, he tells uh, Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, make other image bearers of me and spread my glory across the face of the earth. And so we go to Genesis 2 and we see this, this one of these commands that they get. And starting in verse 15, it says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So the man's there, the woman's not yet there, 
And he gets this command from God, eat of any tree, work it, take care of the garden. I want you to cultivate this land, but don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So this is the first tree. There's gonna be three trees in the sermon. This is the first tree. And we've gotta have this in mind because it leads us to the fall. And this is right away, beginning of the book, chapter three of the story. We actually, in chapter three of the Bible, we get an explanation of why everything that we look around at and see is tainted and is wrong and feels disappointing. Because it says she took of its fruit and ate. So what is that? Let's look at that. Genesis chapter three, verses one through 10. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat it from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So my degree is in uh, advertising actually, and one, the only thing I've ever used it for is that I know this. Advertisers are not actually selling you a product, they're selling you a future life. So for example, if you see a Lexus commercial and, and there's a beautiful woman in the passenger seat and you drive home to a beautiful mansion, they're not selling you the car, they're saying, hey, hey dude, if you have this car, this is your life, this is what it's gonna be. The devil does this here to Eve. And he says, God knows when you eat from this tree, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God knowing good and evil, what he's really telling her is, you won't need God. He made you, you were dependent on him, you could throw that off. You can be God. Let's see what happens. Verse six, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. So did the advertising work? Look at verse six. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, surely the tree always looked that way. It always was good for food. It was always pleasing to the eye, but God said, don't eat of it. But look what else it says in verse six now. She never felt this way before, but all of a sudden she looks at that tree and says, God's holding something back. This is desirable for gaining wisdom. And she took some and ate from it. Satan sold her a future life a life without God, and she bought it, and Adam bought it. And that is the explanation for, because right after that, we're gonna get the curse. The serpent is gonna be cursed. The man and the woman are gonna face consequences, toil and pain and childbirth, and all of these things. And this is why when we look around, things aren't the way they're supposed to be. This first tree and the disobedience at the first tree leads to sin and the curse and shame and disharmony in relationship. It leads to toil and strife 
And most of all, it leads us to running away from God. But the thing about God is he doesn't end his story on a bad note. So right away, we saw right in chapter 3, verse 15, he makes a promise. God is a redeemer and he's a promiser. And he fulfills his promises. In this one, he says that there's going to be a seed of the woman. Someone's going to come from Eve and is going to crush the head of the serpent. And the serpent's going to bruise his heel. So we're going to have the seed of the woman. And so right away in story, chapter 4, Eve says, when she has Cain, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. This is the one who's going to come and crush the head of the serpent. But we learn that Cain doesn't do that. Instead of crushing the head of the serpent, he actually murders his brother. We see that the problem is running deep already. The story goes on to Noah and people living in unrighteousness. So God judges and restarts things with Noah and they live in sin. All the way leading up to the Tower of Babel where people say, we're going to make a name for ourselves. We don't need God. We're going to make our glory shine across the whole world. So God judges them spiritually by dispersing the people and changing the languages so they do not all have one language. So this Tower of Babel, we get a spiritual judgment on their rebellion. But right away then after that, we saw someone who was probably there, Abram, is called by God. And God right away in chapter 12 gives him this promise, in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. An offspring is going to come from you that is going to bless all the people. So God continues his story. And now Abraham, we saw, he's going to change his name. God is going to change his name. Abraham, we saw, is not an impressive dude. In fact, when God calls him here, he's an idol worshiper. He's worshiping false gods. But God calls him to himself. God changes Abraham's story and he says, you are going to be blessed. You're going to have the promised offspring. And so God's, so Abraham's line uh, blows up and he has all kinds of people and, and his sons have sons and out of his sons, sons come Judah. And we got this promise in Genesis 49, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. A king is going to come from the tribe of Judah. And the shocking thing here is it wasn't the firstborn who was going to be this king. It's actually Judah who is going to have a king come from his line. Another unexpected person that God uses. And so that line blows up even more. The people of Israel sped across the face of the earth. They go to Egypt. And they get oppressed and they're in bondage and slavery under the Pharaoh. Worshiping false gods. And God says, he remembers his covenant with Abraham. And says, I'm going to deliver them. And we get the story of the Passover lamb. Where the people of Israel are delivered from oppression and slavery and false worship so that they can be brought out to worship God. And the, and the Passover happens, the blood of the lamb, the blood of an unblemished lamb is spread across the doorposts of the people of Israel and their firstborn sons are spared. So we see that judgment is passing over because of the blood of an unblemished lamb. So God calls his people to himself and he brings them out to a mountain and he gives them the law. And the law says to us, obey my voice and keep my covenant. You shall be my treasured possession. But there's a big if there. And so the people go to this mountain and they're in fear and trembling before God. Because the law covenant is going to say to them, do this and live. 
which by nature means if you don't do this, you die. So the people get this covenant, but they turn from God. In fact, they turn so much that they say, I know you delivered us, but we want another leader. We want someone else's king. Give us a king. And God's there saying, I'm your king. But he gives them a king. He gives them Saul. And Saul fails. And then he calls King David from the shepherds, a shepherd, and he says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. They wanted a king to be like the other nations. They get King David. And they're ruling under King David. They're living under King David's rule. And things are somewhat peaceful. And King David looks at God not having a throne, but God being in the ark. And he says, I'm going to build God a throne. I'm going to build God a temple. And God's like, I don't think you understand how this story goes. Here's what I'm going to do. And God tells David, I'm going to bring someone from your line who is going to establish your kingdom forever. He's going to have a throne that reigns forever and ever. So there's this greater David that's promised. But if we follow the story, this is kind of where like the book of Judges is. If you know the Bible, things get pretty ugly. Things get worse and worse and worse. From David, the kings get worse and worse and worse. Israel rebels more and more and more. So we get the prophets who are constantly calling the people back to God. And in the prophets, we get promises. One of the promises we get is about this king that's to come, this king from the line of David. We saw that he's going to be a suffering servant. Isaiah 53 says, The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We're going to get a king who comes to rule, not in power, but as a servant, who takes the place of his people, who substitutes himself. These prophets are always pointing forward to a greater future. In fact, Isaiah 25 tells us of a different mountain, a mountain that's not a mountain of fear and trembling, a greater mountain to come. In Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 9, it says this, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all people, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the, the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day, they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. So Isaiah points us forward to a second mountain where the pains of the law and sin and death are undone. where death is going to be swallowed up forever. And yet, how do we know? How is this death going to be swallowed up? How is death going to be defeated? And God does something for us. He gives us something in the, in the prophet Ezekiel, where he takes Ezekiel out into a field of dead bones and says, can these bones live? And Ezekiel, in good humility, says, oh, Lord God, you know. How do I know? I'm just a prophet. You know, and God speaks, and these bones get filled up with flesh. They come to life. 
Because God wants to show us he can bring life from death. He gives us that in the prophets, so we have something to look forward to. But then as we continue on in the story, we get some more prophets, but then there's 400 years of silence. The people of God hear nothing from God until John the Baptist, J the B, comes on the scene. And he's this weird guy wearing camel's hair and eating locusts and honey, and the people are like, I don't know what's going on. And then Jesus comes and says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The time is fulfilled. What time? The time when God is going to start to make all things new. So the king is on the scene. The king is the kingdom and he's on the scene. The time is fulfilled and he shows us who he is. Just a few examples from the gospel of Mark. Chapter one, an unclean leper. He touches him, the leper is cleansed. Chapter two, a paralytic. He heals the paralytic, the paralytic runs away, carrying his mat with joy. Later in the story, a woman suffering for 12 years just touches the garments of Jesus and is healed. And then Jairus, the ruler's daughter who is dead, Jesus lifts her up by the hand as if her death was but sleep. He's showing us the king is here. Do you see my power? Do you see who's walking the face of the earth right now? He shows us that he can deal with our uncleanness and it doesn't make him unclean. He shows us that he can heal our inability. He shows us that he's come to deal with our suffering and he shows us that he's come to, do, to die our death so that death for us can become but sleep. He does this as the suffering servant, fulfilling his mission so we saw him safe from the cross it is finished. The suffering servant fulfills his mission. He fulfills the law and he dies for the sins of the people. But also in the story, we saw the grave couldn't hold him. Romans chapter one, he's declared to be the son of God in power. The grave couldn't hold him. He's vindicated because he was sinless. He did not deserve the penalty of death, yet he took it so that death could be conquered. He could be vindicated to prove that Good Friday worked. And now, as the Son of God in power, he can send the Holy Spirit. So he ascends to the Father. But before he ascends, we see this from Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. It says, Then they gathered around him, and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father is set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He's returning to the Father. He's promised he won't leave them as orphans. But look what they ask. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And look what he tells them. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. 
And it's not for you to know the times when the Father is going to make all things new. You, my Holy Spirit-filled people, are going to go forward and tell people the news of me, Jesus, who lived and died and rose again. And we see then in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit falls on the people. And Babel, the spiritual judgment of Babel is turned into blessing as they now are proclaiming the gospel in the tongues that people can hear and understand. Showing that the gospel unites the curses turned to blessing, that the Holy Spirit is now going to dwell in us to show us that we are children of God. And now we're going to take that gospel forward and light up the darkness. We're going to carry God's story forward. But you might be asking at this point, how do I get in on God's story? I get that. You've talked about this story a hundred times during the sermon series. How do I get in on God's story? And that's where we get to justification. And Romans tells us, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In that Acts chapter 2 passage, the apostle Peter preaches the first Christian sermon, and and the people say, Lord, what shall we do, Peter? What shall we do? And he says, call upon the name of the Lord and you may be saved. This is the good news of the gospel, that God is holy and has to judge sin. We are unholy and deserve to be judged, and Christ comes and takes the wrath we deserve on the cross. He takes our sin upon himself, and by faith in him, Faith alone gives us his righteousness. This is the great exchange, as Martin Luther called it. He takes our sin and our wrath and our condemnation and gives us his right standing before God. He stands before God as if he were us so that we can stand before God as if we were him, as Charles Spurgeon has said. That we get to be right with God simply by believing this message, believing this news. For me, that happened right here, not at this church, but in that church. This is a picture of Hope Community Church downtown, the West Building, the Upper Pew. On March 1st of 2015, I wrote in a notebook, today I give my life to Jesus Christ. In that moment, my 27 years of sin and rebellion and spitting in God's face were washed away and I was given a new story. I was declared righteous in his sight. This is the gospel, the great exchange. God rewrites our stories. Jesus changes our stories in a moment. So we become new people. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, we saw already in this series says this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. Jesus makes people new. He makes us people with new stories, pointing others to the true story. So then we are little signposts to the world, little lights, little lamps on a stand, little glimpses that God is at work in this world. But you may be asking, all right, that's pretty good news. I like the deal. I'm in on it. Why is it still so hard? I get it. I get justification. I've been in on that. Why all the difficulties? 
Why am I so lonely? Why do I let myself down constantly, much less God and others? Why do I have broken dreams, strained relationships? Why is my body failing? Why does anxiety hunt me down? Why am I stuck in depression? Why is there so much disease and war and strife and injustice? Why is it still so hard? The Apostle Paul tells us this in 2 Corinthians. He says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The Apostle Paul's telling us, it's not supposed to be this way. We're right to be disappointed. But he also says, one day things won't be this way. So we look ahead to glory. We look ahead to the things that are unseen with the eyes of faith. And yet you still might be asking, God, what are you going to do about it? You might just be asking it. You might even be provoking God saying, what are you going to do? Do you even care? And this is where we have to see that God has a better ending to the story. This ending is called glory. The verses from Revelation 21, the dwelling place of God is with man. But we have to ask, how can God dwell with his people? And that's where we've got to see the second tree in the story. And that's the tree of the cross. Galatians 3, 10 through 14 describes it this way. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Sometimes we talk about big L law and little L law. Big L law is trying to earn your way to God through religious rule keeping. If I just do enough, God, you'll have to accept me. Right here it says, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things. The law says do this and live. And we can't. There's also little L law, where we become enslaved to Facebook likes, human approval, how well our kids are developing, what people think of us, or how good we see ourselves in our own eyes. And Jesus comes to set us free from that. How? By becoming a curse for us. On the second tree, Jesus takes the curse so that we might receive the blessing. As the song said, the work was done with nothing but wood and nails. 
in his scarborn hands. And that's where he declares it is finished. And I like this picture because he takes off the crown of thorns. That crown was temporary. He puts on the crown of glory. That crown is eternal. The crown of thorns came off. The crown of glory stayed. Jesus brings us to the second mountain because he walked through the valley of the shadow of death. So we are in what theologians call the already not yet. I made new a little bit. I still sin. This world's still broken. It's not made new. What do we do about that? For that, let's look to Romans 8. What are we hoping in? The Apostle Paul says this, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, God, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Heaven is not clouds in the sky. It is us in new bodies living in a new creation. We're going to see that more and more. It is a real place for real people and real glorified bodies. And it's a place reserved for those who have trusted in Christ. Continuing on, he says, for in this hope we were saved. This is what we're waiting on. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And this got cut off, but it says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. God helps us. And he's going to work all things out for our good. Continuing on, verse 29 of Romans 8. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Right there, if you want to know what God's doing, he's making us into the image of his son. That we might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. That word glorified is the word for when we get new bodies. Resurrection bodies, redeemed bodies. One's not susceptible to failure. One's not susceptible to sin. Bodies that can handle eternity with God. And he says it in the past tense. He wants us to be that assured that God is going to do this, that he says it in the past tense, as if, it's, as if God has already done it. What then, verse 31, shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with us graciously give us all things? 
Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, the one who could condemn, is the one who died. More than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it, as it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul wants us to see that if your faith is in Christ, you are secure no matter what your circumstances. And that the new creation is coming. That as the song says, the dead will rise and give you praise. Wood and nails will not hold them down. These wooden tombs will break them soon and fashion them into flower beds. The day is coming when nursing homes won't exist. There won't be hospice. There won't be hospitals. There won't be NICUs. There won't be cemeteries because Jesus finishes the work. He's the one who does it. In his work, the devil loses. Death dies. God's wrath is satisfied. We're set free to live new stories. We're going to have bodies that are glorified. Our dry, dead bones are going to live. Peace is going to come in full and we are going to enjoy the new creation. We're going to be fully redeemed. We're going to be so sinless that when God says jump, we're not going to say how high because we'll already be jumping. The day is coming when things will be the way they are supposed to be. Jesus is going to bring us to the second mountain because he walked through the valley of the shadow of death and swallowed up death. So what will it look like? And now we finally get to our verse for today. Revelation 21, 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And Revelation 22, one through five says this. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. This heavenly city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And now here's the third tree. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. 
They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. That's the end of God's story. No more curse, eternal joy. Enjoying God forever and ever. We're gonna skip that and say, what do we do until then? If that's where we're headed, what do we do until then? We make much of Jesus the better hero. God's better story with a better ending has that better ending because of the work of his son, the better hero. Because Jesus rewrites our story. So our lives stop being about us and start being about him. And we make much of Jesus by connecting with a local church, by gathering with one another, encouraging one another, and telling others of this news that they can be made new. And the one who makes us new is Jesus. He's the one who the story's all about. He's the better light that shines in the darkness. He's the true Adam who walks in obedience, undoing the curse by taking it upon himself. He's the true image of God who represents the Father fully and makes his glory known. He's the one who crushes the head of the serpent, the enemy of our souls. He's the true offspring of Abraham. He's the true king in the line of Judah. He's the truly unblemished Passover lamb who deals with God's wrath and our guilt once for all, setting us free from slavery to sin with his unblemished blood. He's the king in the line of David who rules in righteousness forever, who will never let us down. He's the suffering servant who unexpectedly takes our place and pays our debt for sin. Jesus is the first one whose dead bones come to life. He's the one who finishes the work with wooden nails in his scarborn hands. He's the one who fulfills the law and ends its tyranny. He's the one who defeats death and leaves it in the dust. Jesus is the sender of the spirit, the center of the gospel, the one who forgives us of our sins and justifies us. He's the one who knows what it's like to be us because he came for us. And it says of him, a bruised reed he will not break. He's the one who sits on the throne ruling over us and interceding for us. He's the one who makes peace through his blood. He's the one who make, will make all things, including us and our broken hearts and our broken bodies and this broken world, new and beautiful. Jesus is the husband to us, his bride, the church, who will lead us into eternal glory that surpasses anything we could imagine. That means when our story's rewritten, our, our story stops becoming about us and starts being about him. We stop looking like us and start looking like him. Our lives become stories about the better hero. One last thing. Revelation 21.4 says this again. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no mourning, no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. God puts these things in here and I hope we leave with an ache, a longing for this day to come. Worshiping that God is one day gonna make it right. And if you're hurting in here today, which I know you are, because every one of us is, few things are as universal as hurting and suffering and disappointment. 
He's got a final word for us. There is a day coming when God will, as it were, bend to a knee like a father to a child who has skinned their knee and has tears rolling hot down their faces and put his thumbs in our eye sockets and wipe away all the pain and all the disappointment and all the loneliness and all our sin forever and ever. The Jesus Storybook Bible says it this way, I see a sparkling city shimmering in the sky, glittering, glowing, coming down from heaven and from the sky. Heaven is coming down to earth. God's city is beautiful. Walls of topaz, jasper, and sapphire. Wide streets paved with gold. Gleaming pearl gates that are never locked shut. Where is the sun? Where is the moon? They aren't needed anymore. God is all the light people need. No more darkness. No more night. And the king says, look, God and his children are together again. No more running away or hiding. No more crying or being lonely or afraid. No more being sick or dying because all those things are gone. Yes, they're gone forever. Everything sad has come untrue. And see, I have wiped away every tear from every eye. And then a deep, beautiful voice that sounded like thunder in the sky says, look, I am making everything new. That's the voice of Jesus. In that day, we will say, we trusted in him and he saved us. So as we close, I'm just gonna ask, has God rewritten your story? Have you had that encounter with Jesus where you said, I need you. I'm tired of writing my own story and trying to be right with God on my own account. My faith is in you, Jesus. You can do business with God in a moment and get in on this new story. And if you are in on this story, we gotta remember this. We gotta remember God tells a better story than the world. He's got a better hero and a better ending is coming. So in the meantime, let's make much of Jesus because he's coming back. We're gonna close now with a couple songs and a time of communion. Here at Hope, we practice what we call open communion. You don't have to be a member of this church or any church. We just ask that you'd be someone who said yes to Jesus, that you put your faith in him. If that's you, maybe today, we'd love to have you take this meal with us. The, they're on both sides here. And don't forget the prayer cards are also available. The bread that represents Jesus' body broken for us, the juice that represents his blood shed for us, this meal that we take to remember and make much of Jesus until we eat with him face to face. And remember that last song we'll sing together, the special. I'm gonna pray and the worship team's gonna come up and we'll conclude. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this good news. We thank you that we can look beyond what we see to the unseen. We thank you that you are the one who justifies the ungodly because Christ is the one who finished the work. We thank you that we have a hope beyond this world, that today doesn't have to be the end of our story, but it can be the beginning of our new life in you. Our story can be about you. God, and we thank you that you tell a better story with a better hero and a better ending. And we pray that you would help us get in on that story, to share that news, and encourage one another until the day that we eat this meal with you face to face. We pray all of this. In Jesus' name, amen.